you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. found the liberal soul. My name is Luke Mason. I'm really excited because today on the podcast I am joined by Zachary Gerber. Zach is a multi-talented, multi-instrumental musician, as you'll hear through our conversation. He's also a very accomplished and proficient sound engineer, and he's also my cousin. So I'm excited to get to talk to him today. We talk mostly about music because, as I like to say, music was my first love. And so we get to talk a lot today about the music that we grew up loving, why we love it, and what it means to us, and what it means to us now. Uh, Zach, additionally into all those things, is a touring musician and friend of the band Walk Off the Earth from Ontario, who have had several massive hits on YouTube. And so he has toured extensively through many different countries. So he he's not very old yet. <laughs> he's already had a really awesome career in music. And because of his experience and proficiencies and knowledge and intelligence and humor, I'm really grateful that he joined me on the podcast today. We talk about the bands that were formative for us, um, what our favorite bands are, different things about musical instruments we enjoy, what music means to us, and all of the kind of in-betweens there. And then we finished talking a lot about uh, pop punk and my favorite band, Jimmy Eat World. So I was pretty happy about all of that. Uh, so just before we begin, I'm really grateful to everyone who listens to this podcast. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, if you could give a rating or a review, that's a really good way to help new people find the show. And I would really appreciate it as well as you can subscribe on all major or minor podcasting apps. I'm not sure which ones they're all on, but I know they're on all the main ones. So you can find it there, and then you'll get notifications of new episodes. As well, I have a Facebook group, The Liberal Soul. You can find it and join, so you'll get updates there. If you really are interested, you can send me an email, theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. If there's ever anything in any of the episodes you find interesting or annoying or anything in between, feel free to let me know about it. I want to be always open to talking about what I talk about on the podcast with any listener. So without further ado, I bring you an extremely entertaining and fun for me conversation with my cousin, Zach Gerber. All right. And I am here with Zach Gerber. Zach, how are you doing today, bud? Man, I'm so good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the show. No problem. Among all the other superlatives I could throw your way, you also happen to be my cousin. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Which is yep. pretty exciting. Lifelong. <laughs> yeah, lifelong cousins. <laughs> now, this is funny. 
maybe mostly just for me because i have a different podcast really true fiction with a different cousin anytime i talk about my cousin to friends who've never met any of them they just assume i'm talking about david right (laughs) and uh i think between all of the conversations i'm gonna have on this podcast listeners will start to discover i have almost an unending amount of cousins (laughs) it's a big family yeah it's i I would say it's well above average for sure (laughs) i i would um on our mom's side, which is on the side we're cousins in, I think I have 13 cousins. Is that what the count is? Yeah. That makes that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. There's, it was, the Christmases were, uh, were full and joyous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Although, given that you're in Ontario, it was mostly just my family and David's family because we were the only Western ones at Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah. True. Did we ever do a Christmas together? I think there was one your family came out here when you were really young or maybe because mm, you, you were born in Vancouver, right? I was born in Vancouver. So there might've been a it Christmas. It might've been that then. Christmas. That... Yeah. That would be well before I was forming permanent memories. <laughs> <laughs> Late bloomer. That's fine. That's fine. You've bloomed well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I don't have any recollection of two months old. <laughs> well, you know, high standards. <laughs> I, Hey, I appreciate high standards. You yeah. know, I'll do better next life. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So, how I would phrase it is that you are probably the first person in my life that comes to mind when I think about musical talent in my known life. I guess you and Dan probably are the two people I know in life, our other cousin Dan, different cousin. Yeah, <laughs> who, uh, there's, there's so many cousins. <laughs> yeah, you two are the ones who come to my mind when I think about musical talent in my personal life or people I've ever met. Obviously, I've observed great musical talent of people I've never met before. And they're probably better than us. (laughs) Music, I always say, is my first love. It's the very first thing that ever tapped into what I'm calling now, in retrospect, my liberal soul of being able to fall in love with something in the world. And so that's going to be like a pretty common theme in this podcast. And so I wanted to get you on in an earlier episode, because of your wealth of knowledge and experience in music, why don't you just give us and the listeners a little background into your music pedigree? Um, what have you done in music over your life? Yeah, for sure. So uh, when I was a wee child, my mom tried to get me to play the piano or mm. the violin. Sure. And I thoroughly rejected both. <laughs> I wanted nothing to do with it. I was like, Mom, that's not cool. And I wanted to play sports and I played baseball and hockey growing up. And then I was probably 12 years old when I I decided I wanted to play drums. And I went to my parents and I was like, I want to play drums. And my parents were like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like we're not (laughs) buying you a drum kit. That is so loud. And then I basically spent their, their, their compromise with me was instead of buying me a drum kit, they bought me they're, they're called like practice pads and drummers use them to warm up. So they bought me a pair of drumsticks and this little practice pad. Mm. And I spent probably like four to six months straight hitting it every day. Right. And so when my birthday that year rolled around, they're like, okay, like this guy's serious about play, playing drums. And they bought me a drum kit. And I think I was 12 years old. You could, uh, you could fact check me on that, but we'll <laughs> go with it. Um, and <laughs> fact checking so, is not a major priority on this podcast. <laughs> Okay, great. (laughs) So I started playing drums and I took four years of drum lessons and 
I think I was 14 years old when I joined my first band. Actually, not as a drummer, but as a guitarist. I'd, I'd picked up a little bit of guitar, and I was taking drum lessons, but I had taught myself how to play guitar. Mm. I wasn't good, but I was good enough to join a band at, you know, 14, 15 years old. And uh, that was, like, that was the start of my, like, real passionate love for music uh, because I just loved getting into a basement with a, a group of people and playing music even though we sucked. And we sucked for a long time and, and we just we just kept on playing. And, you know, that band broke up and then there was another band that formed. And, you know, through my teens and early 20s, I played in, you know, four or five different groups. And then quite on accident, when I was 18 years old, I wasn't actually playing in, in this particular band. I was playing in a different band at the time. But uh, there was a, a metal band called Unlimited. They got offered a two week tour in the United Kingdom. And, you know, obviously we're from Canada. So that was a pretty big deal. And their bass player didn't want to buy the plane ticket. And so their singer called me up and he's like, do you play bass? I was like, no, I don't. And he's like, but do you want a tour in the UK? I was like, yeah, of course. And he's like, cool, I need you to play bass. I was like, great. So I think I had, it was, it was like two or three weeks that I had to pick up these bass parts and, and play these bass parts. And at 18 years old, I, you know, hopped the pond and went across the ocean and, and did a two-week tour in the United Kingdom with this metal band called Unlimited. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was the start of, you know, a decade of, of touring around the world. So I, I came home from that tour and that band broke up and I started a different band called Static Prevails. And we did a little bit of touring around us Ontarians, call it, you know, the 401 route. Mm -hmm. So there's a major highway through Ontario called the 401. And there's lots of stops along there. Um, and it goes up into, you know, Quebec and, you know, you hit right, Montreal yeah. and that, that whole area. And so we did a number of 401 tours, but kind of, you know, through d doing all of that, I was given the opportunity to uh, work for uh, a Canadian band called Walk Off the Earth. Right. And I started working for Walk Off the Earth and that, you know, I was, I was young. I was still young. I was, I was 19 years old when I started working for them. And that immediately just shot me to a, a different level of touring that I hadn't been doing, doing even, you know, above and beyond that UK tour that I did with Unlimited. I've toured with them through, well, if we're not concerned about fact checks, I'm going to say 28 countries. <laughs> it's somewhere in that ballpark. Wow. But it's definitely over 25. Um, and I've been touring with them for almost a decade now. So that's kind of like the live touring world. And then as I was playing in bands growing up, every time I went into the recording studio to record with one of my bands, I was just absolutely taken aback and obsessed with this idea of like getting into a room and sitting down and recording your music and like fleshing out the finer details and paying attention to the small stuff mm -hmm. and and doing all of that. And I just loved going into the studio every time I went in. And so I was uh, maybe 16 or 17 years old, playing drums in a punk band called Last One Out. And we went and did this record at a, a studio in Toronto, you know, going into the big city to do a record. Uh, <laughs> and we, we did a record at the studio called City Tape. Yeah. And it was then that I was like, okay, I'm obsessed with recording records. This is my favorite thing. I love this. And so I started a recording studio of my own. And so now I... Uh, now my day job, since I can't tour anymore because <laughs> of COVID, is right. uh, I own and operate my recording studio here in Cambridge, Ontario called Skytrack Studios. And it's gone through a number of different transformations, but I've been, you know, doing it unofficially for probably 10 or 12 years. But I've been really, really serious about it for, you know, mm. I would say, you know, six to eight. 
Okay. And that's kind of what I do. That's that's yeah. my musical journey. So you're both a musician and a sound engineer. Correct. Yeah. 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 Honestly, I'm probably better at at, at sound than I am at play. <laughs> yeah. And and you love it in a similar manner. Yes. Yeah. I, it's it's actually the way I illustrate that to people, and I do this with musicians all of the time. I've gotten good at sound engineering and you know producing and mixing and mastering the way musicians get good at an instrument so you know a guitarist sits down and he practices his guitar parts and he runs scales and he does all those sorts of things i've done the same thing just in you know audio production and i kind of look at audio production as like the instrument that i'm best at even though i play drums i play guitar i play bass i sing i do all those sorts of things right i look at producing music as like my main instrument and that's what i've dedicated my life to oh okay yeah actually that that preempts my question because i was going to ask what instruments you play (laughs) in total what are all the instruments you play I play drums, I play bass, I play guitar, I play a little bit of keys. I'm not very good, but I'm good enough that like if I have a client in the room and they need a key part, I can like play it badly and then fix it in the in Pro Tools. Right. <laughs> and I sing as well. And you sound engineer, it sounds like. <laughs> and a sound engineer, yeah. Now, of all of those, uh, setting aside sound engineering, which one would you say is your best instrument? Drums. Drums? Drums. Yeah, and so it- I took four years of drum lessons and drums were my first instrument, and uh, uh, yeah, they're they're definitely the strongest one still. Mm. So, in your storytelling, you reminded me of a little joke about bass players that I was—I think I'll relay here because it's kind of love, funny. I love bass player jokes, uh, and and I'll preface it by saying it was—I play a little music myself, certainly not to your level, but I was in a—I was in a cover band in Korea, and this was a joke our bass player told me when we were in Korea. He said, um, okay, so there's this guy playing bass and he goes to the first practice and he comes home from the practice and his, his mom says to him, oh, what'd you learn today? And he's like, oh, I learned these notes. Boom, 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 boom. He's like, oh, okay. And then the second day he goes to practice and his mom says, what'd you learn today at practice? He's like, oh, I learned these notes. Boom, 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 boom. So like a, like an octave basically, right? And then yeah. and then the next day he comes home from practice and his mom says, oh, how's practice today? And he says, practice? We had our first gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Again, man. told by bass. a bass player. I, told by a bass player. I, man, I and I am a bass player and I love playing bass and I love bass player jokes. And it's easy <laughs> to make bass player jokes because yes. so often they can just they just play the simplest stuff. But there is a line that separates good p- bass players from bad sure. bass players. And when you get a good bass player, mm-hmm. it is like I would rather I I think I would rather listen to a good bass player than a good guitar player. Sure. Well, my observation on bass has always been like obviously you can have like the the upper echelon people who are stand out but i always feel with bass you notice it most when it's not there i say that to people too yeah Yeah, when you hear a song without a bass you're just like there's something so deeply missing in this song bass players do that to me when i'm mixing all the time they're like i can't hear my bass i don't really feel like my bass is in the mix and then i mute the bass guitar and they're like Mm. oh (laughs) (laughs) right i also have a joke about drummers if you want to hear it yeah, hit me. Okay, what do you Get call... It? Get it? His drums? Ah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that was good. What do you call a good band with a bad drummer? A bad band? A bad band. <laughs> what do you yeah, call a bad... What do you call a bad band with a good drummer? That's a more interesting question. I don't know what you would call that. An okay band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I'll tell you what, the drums are the backbone of the music. Oh, and sure. you take you take that backbone away and it doesn't matter how good the rest of the band is. If the drummer sucks, 
it's not fun. Mm. Well, muscles and the circulatory system don't have much to do without a skeleton. <laughs> That's very correct. Very correct. That is how anatomy works. <laughs> um, something else occurred to me when you were like relaying your background in music and I wanted to ask you about, because obviously Walk Off the Earth is a quite a famous band in Canada. I'm not quite sure. I mean, you've been all over the world, so I, presumably they're also kind of famous in other countries, but they're a big name act here. But I imagine you also have got to spend time with other pretty famous acts in your globetrotting. What are some of the other bands that you've interacted with or spent time with or got to meet or seen up close in a way that most people don't get to? Yeah, I've been very blessed and fortunate because of the situation that I've been put into to come across and, and get to see bands that I've looked up to and, and respected from a young age to drop names. Um, and these aren't all people I've met, but you know, I got to watch the Foo Fighters at a festival that I played. I got to watch Paul McCartney very, very front row at a festival I played. Mm. I got to see Ellie Golding. Like there's, there's right. just, we, we've done, we've done a number of really, really big uh, European festivals. And when you, when you do that, you just come across the, the top echelon of acts and you get to watch them. Um, actually one of my favorite shows that I've ever ever seen is a band that i don't even really listen to called ramstein they're a, a german metal band <laughs> oh, i know ramstein dude so we played a festival and ramstein headlined and that is the craziest show i have ever mm -hmm. seen like to give the listeners perspective the start of the show the lights are low mm -hmm. right yeah and one person walks out onto the stage okay and it's the drummer and he just sits down at his drums and he kind of stares out at the audience and the spotlight's on him. And he just starts hitting his kick drum, like kick, 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 right? And he does that for a bit. And then you hear this like eerie like build happening. And then you hear these guitars come in, right? Yeah. And the band's walking out on stage and everyone's coming to their position. And you're like, okay, I like, I see all these band members, but like, where are these guitarists? Well, doesn't like a truss from up in the roof, lower down from like the roof. And here the two guitarists are standing on this truss being lowered down to the stage. <laughs> and then they jump out onto the stage and then the whole band's there, but the singer isn't there yet. And then you see the singer walk out and he, he, you know, he hops up on this like platform right at the very, very front of the stage. And, uh, all of the music stops. And there's just like this moment that hangs in dead air. And then the band kicks back in and the singer blows this like 50 foot flame out of his mouth, <laughs> like out over top of the audience. <laughs> and that was just the start of the show. Wow. <clears throat> it is the craziest show I've ever seen yeah, by yeah, far. Yeah. They spend more on fireworks, I'm sure, per show than I'll probably come across in money in my entire life. <laughs> you know, that that's so crazy. Like, just think about the uh, production that goes into something like that. Although your story reminded me a little bit. I'm, have you ever seen This is Spinal Tap? Yes. Their scene on jazz is my favorite scene I've yeah. ever seen in right. a movie ever. The the beginning <laughs> where the, or, or the scene where the 18 inch tall Stonehenge stone comes yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah exactly. So ridiculous. <laughs> well, they should have gone to Ramstein. I think they would have helped them out with their production a little bit. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. So Do you like, know the scene I'm talking about about jazz? He's like, jazz is just mistakes. Like, can you believe that you can go to school to get a degree on how to play it wrong? 
<laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. That's He's pretty like, we're good. in a rock band. You know, we play in the key that we're playing in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a great condescension, especially a, a, a British one in that <laughs> presentation. Yeah. So suffice it to say, you have had quite a lot of experience around music and specifically rock music, but all sorts of different subgenres around there. But I wanted to ask you, to me, it seems like so much of what music has come to mean in my life is representing a kind of like being told a truth externally that you feel internally, but you don't quite know how to say. Yes. And, and that's like something, I think that that's like the core of why it's it can be so special to people, especially as they're growing. I wanted to ask what your first memory or memories of music were or are, if you have any. And I'll just say, like, I remember I was about five, probably five or six. And we had this chair in our living room that would spin in a circle. And I would put on, we had cassette tapes then, and I would put on like some whatever form of the Christian music that was on the shelf that my parents had. And I'd put it in the tape player and it would play and I would just spin in a circle for like half an hour. (laughs) Like just so entranced, so entranced by the music that I could like, and I would get dizzy in any other scenario, but I could do that for so long and not get dizzy and just feel it. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, what are your first memories of music actually i was gonna say something else but your story sparked an even earlier memory uh my dad especially growing up uh he loved this band well when i was growing up not him he loved this band called dc talk oh yeah i know Um, dc talk (laughs) and so at a very very young age it's funny that you talk about spinning in circles at a very very young age i would put in the cassette tape that had uh, Jesus Freak on it because I loved oh, yeah. the energy of that song, and I would put on Jesus Freak. A good bass at the beginning, s- if I'm not mistaken. You know, I, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to the song because <laughs> I don't really remember it now. Right. But I I know that I would put on that recording and just run circles around my living room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And like bounce off my couch. Yeah. No, that's a good one. So what was the other one you were gonna say though? Your first one that came to mind when I asked. Yeah, so the other one that I was going to say, and this is actually isn't a memory that I have, but it's a memory that my, my mom told me about. So back way back when, when Princess Diana was killed in that car accident, mm-hmm. I believe it was Candle in the Wind that Elton yeah. John played at the funeral. And that was broadcasted over the radio, I guess. And uh, my parents, I guess, were listening to the, the broadcast over the radio. And I walked into the room and I had no like concept of what was going on. And I, like, I, I had no connotation to put it against. But I walked into the room and I looked at my mom and I said, you know, mom, this is, this, this is the song that I would play if my mommy and daddy died. Oh. <laughs> and so I guess, I guess I've always just, I've always felt music from a young age. My guess would be that everyone certainly every musician but everyone can have a first memory of music because it's something that's like so encompassing in human life it's hard to imagine i I don't know i would say it's probably the most popular thing in the world right there's yeah i mean you could definitely argue that yeah it seems to me one of the things that anthropologists learn when they study cultures around the world that weren't known to kind of western scholarship before was that almost all of them have some sort of dance or rhythmic take or some sort of ritual that involves music in uh, their background so i just it's it's no surprise to me that it hits people so deep it seems to be a universal you know 
Yeah, and that's such a cool point because there are so many unique and different interpretations of music, but music in and of itself is ingrained into pretty much any culture. You know, even if the the interpretations and the styles and the movements are different, mm. it is present everywhere with every type of of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's just so funny how this isn't my first memory of music, but my first kind of like exposure to, I guess, non-Christian music in my life. I remember um, mine too. (laughs) I was probably, I don't know, maybe nine or 10, maybe a little younger. And we had this guy named Lincoln who lived in our house with our family in the basement. I can't remember the exact timeline, but he introduced my dad or my dad and him kind of simultaneously introduced our family to the band U2. So (laughs) I have this kind of weird relationship with U2 because obviously as I got older, I realized that they're like world famous, right? One of the most famous bands of the 80s. And they were like a gateway band, I guess, because they had a lot of Christian themes in their songs. So they were still acceptable to play in the household, let's say. (laughs) Sure, yeah. But it's so funny because there's a good chunk of time in my life where I was like a little bit jealous of the fact that other people knew you two because that was my band, right? Like that was the band that I knew, <laughs> my household. Like, who, what are you talking about? You listen to you two. This is my house, <laughs> the band of my. Yeah, no one's else. No one else is allowed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what was like the first? band you ever can have recollect listening to and, and feeling like it made an impact on you? I think the first band I latched onto independently of my parents was a Christian rock band called Skillet. Oh yeah. So I kind of came Skillet. across I came across like Skillet, Thousand Foot Crutch, and Switchfoot all kind of at once. Mm. And you know, Reliant K was shortly behind that. I've always had like a, a leaning toward heavier music and Skillet of that group was the heaviest. Right. And I became very, very, very obsessed with them. And um, that was right around the time that I was learning to play drums. And so I would I would shoot at playing their songs all day, every day in my basement. And I would just, you know, suck and just hit my drums to their songs. <laughs> and actually, um, they are the, the first concert I ever went to. My dad oh. took me to a Skillet concert. Okay. And... What's cool is that you you were asking about um, bands and people that have come across in the touring world. Uh, We got to play. In fact, it was the same festival that we saw Ramstein at. Mm. Skillet was also at that festival at a different stage. And uh, I didn't introduce myself to them. I felt bad. I went and saw their set. So we played earlier in the day on the main stage and they were playing like a a side stage, like in the mid afternoon. Mm -hmm. And so I had I had my day wrapped up and all of the gear was back in the truck and all of that. And uh, I ran across and I wanted to see Skillet because I hadn't seen them in so long. And they were good as always. And then I did see them in the uh, the backstage catering area. And I was going to go up and introduce myself and just tell them the story and be like, hey, like, I loved you guys. You know, <laughs> I looked up to you. You guys were the, you know, I, I have a picture of me at like 13 years old with you guys. But they were sitting there having their dinner and like doing homework with their kids. And I was like, OK, I'm going to leave you guys alone. But yeah. that was a cool experience to, to you know. They, they really ignited a, a passion in me for music at a very, very young age. And then I got to, to play the same festival as them, you know, you fast forward, wow. you know, probably 10, 12 years. So that was, it was, it was a good feeling and it was a cool experience to be able to, to do that. Right. And was it, I mean, that's so funny. Like, it's just fun that you kind of 
as you get more life experience, these things kind of bend around and meet at the other side, you know, in a way that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, they, they, they end up in, in circles that you didn't see coming. Oh, I think music is so great at that because there's like young up-and-coming musicians or bands that get really influenced by other musicians, right? Like there's a very much a mentorship and an inspiration based on, I mean, you mentioned the Foo Fighters earlier and Dave Grohl will talk a lot in interviews about bands that influenced him and got him excited when he was a young person kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I just think it's so, this is one of the encapsulating things about music in life is that you, you get inspired by someone, you work hard, you learn the craft, you write your own art, and then you, I don't know if eclipse is the right word, but you can grow bigger than the people who inspired you. And then you see them and then you can like go and thank them. And it, the, there's this there's this potential, I mean, it doesn't happen in every case, but there's this potential for like massively famous musicians to go and like, just talk about somebody nobody's ever heard of that have been such an inspiration to them, you know, and I get so caught up in all artists, but musicians, especially who have such an articulate way of talking about the things that inspired them to become musicians, right? Like it's such a, Mm -hmm. it's such a, ensemble enterprise even though we split them up by band right like there's so much influence that goes on in such a way that i find so life-affirming if that makes sense yeah it uh it's cool because when you hear especially famous musicians talk about you know who inspired them from a young age and and that sort of thing it kind of levels the playing field at least in my head because you know here like so you take you take dave Grohl for instance um like I have so much respect for that dude. I think he's incredible. Yeah, me too. I think he's like I love his band. And I, I love like I love Dave Grohl more than I love the Foo Fighters. Like I think <laughs> Dave Grohl is incredible. And I also love Taylor Hawkins, who is the drummer, because yeah. he's the, the the he makes the best drummer faces and he's an amazing drummer and I love everything about him. <laughs> and he looks like he uh, should just be on a surfboard all day. <laughs> yeah, or like he looks like a Moppet on a surfboard playing drums. Yeah. <laughs> so I read uh, a biography of Dave Grohl's called This Is a Call. Hmm. And it, it was it was uh, very, very, very detailed about like his early days and, and what it was like for him as a young musician. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like I've had a lot of the same experiences and the way he talks about like looking up to people like that's how I look up to Dave Grohl. And like I'm, I'm not saying I'm Dave Grohl and I'm not saying I'm, I'm anywhere mm-hmm. near that that level, but it, it does bring a, a human level back to those people that we kind of put on a pedestal to be like, you know, these guys, they're incredibly successful and they've they've made such a name for themselves but you know there's elements of me that are in parallel to those people and that's a cool mm-hmm. feeling too yeah well i mean i think that that gets to ultimately what i now love so much about music is that it can be such a social endeavor too like you can it can be you go to a concert i mean obviously not lately but you can go to a concert and just there aren't here, I'll put it to you this way. There aren't many things that get total strangers to put their arms around each other in camaraderie and like communion, you know? Yeah, great point. Can you think of anything else? I guess sporting events. Yeah. Sporting events will do it. But yeah, but, like the, but the... sporting events carry the liability of also almost necessarily needing an out group. You can put your arms around the people who support your team but you need a different team to be able to identify as not as, right? Whereas music Correct, yeah. music itself, 
I mean, you could really split a hair and find some sort of outgroup, like maybe someone who doesn't love the band that you're all cheering for and hate on that person. But I find it to be in the moment much more spontaneous than that, where it's like there is no kind of downside. It's just your emotions and your desire to kind of move your body and be engaged and sing along. It's such a invitational endeavor in a way that I don't know if there is anything else like that. Yeah, and it's a celebration in in a way that I haven't experienced other celebrations. Like when you get a group of people into a building and a band goes on stage and you are screaming your heart out next to a stranger that you've never met before, mm-hmm. and in that moment you guys are best friends, that's that's something that's an experience I've never pulled out of anything other than going to a concert. It's it's only available as far as I know there. You know, here's a little anecdote for you. So as you know, and I guess the listeners now know too, I lived in South Korea for three and a half years. And two years ago, we had a kind of South Korea reunion in uh, the interior of BC because two of the people in the town where I was in Korea were getting married and one of them was from BC as well. And so about 12 of us, maybe 10 from this town in Korea all came to the wedding and so like there were people from california a couple other people from england texas new york so i was the local because i was in calgary at the time (laughs) and we all come together and there's this thing that in korea because there were so many english and british friends there's this i don't know if it's a common thing in england but whenever oasis would be played in the bar or (laughs) someone would play open mic all the guys would just take their shirts off it was like the lads oh, anthem really? kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, at this wedding, we like did an any Oasis song or a specific Oasis. No, song? any Oasis song. It didn't matter. That's I amazing. mean, it was most commonly "Don't Look Back in Anger," but mm-hmm. any you know anyone will do. Mm-hmm. And so we did an open mic night at their wedding. The last song I played of the day was "Wonderwall," and like probably fifty people took their shirts off for this like sweaty (laughs) i mean it's hard to believe in covid times now but like all the guys and like a bunch of the girls just took their shirts off and were just in their bras there's about 50 people arms around each other singing their little hearts out to wonderwall and it's just like there is no other way that could have happened (laughs) like there's no yeah you can't really think of anything else that would make that happen and everyone knows all the words and it's just because it's so inclusive there right it's so inclusive yeah, for people. Yeah, hundred percent. I have a I have a funny story on Wonderwall, if I may. Oh, of course, please. I was doing a festival in Europe, and uh, Liam Gallagher was playing the same festival. For someone who's never experienced a festival of that magnitude, like we're talking, like these festivals bring in like one hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand people, right? Sometimes, and uh, so obviously, logistically. You know, some you know some of these bands like there's multiple bands and multiple stages. You know, some of these bands are bringing in like 30 trucks. Like it's a logistical <laughs> yeah. nightmare, and that's just one band. It's a logistical nightmare to put on a festival like that. It's it's very coordinated. Everything has to run very much on a schedule, um, and it's very detailed. And like kind of the cardinal rule is like you don't play over your set time. Like your set time starts at this time, and it ends at this time, and mm-hmm. you don't play over that because you know we have 30 trucks to dump to get the next band on the stage. Right. And there's only the uh, time that we've allotted to do it. Sure. So Liam Gallagher's playing and yeah. his set time finishes and 
he wants to play one more song. <laughs> and <laughs> I can see the stage manager talking to his, whoever it was, tour manager, whatever, like, yo, this dude needs to get off his off the stage. His set time's over. And then you hear Liam say through the mic, he's like, you really going to kick me off the stage? I'm about to play Wonderwall. Do you not think these people want to hear Wonderwall? Like, you really going to kick me off right now? And then he played Wonderwall. Of course, yeah. The rock star's <laughs> entitlement. Yeah. So that was, it was funny. Yeah. It was a funny little moment. I mean, that that's, uh, now we're just swapping fun uh, festival stories, but it reminded me of um, in 2015, I went to the Sasquatch Music Festival, which is at the Gorge I don't know if you've ever been able to play there before or be there, but it's like... I haven't done that one, though. It's this gorgeous natural amphitheater in um, central west central Washington state in the desert area, and there's the river there and the gorge. Dave Matthews plays there a lot. and so, Oh, Dave Matthews is incredible. Yeah, exactly. So we were at this festival, and it was um, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin and his new band, and it was just hilarious because every he played about six Led Zeppelin songs, and every time it was a Led Zeppelin song that he was playing. The crowd, you know, 40, 50,000 people, however many were like at that stage, everyone's jumping, everyone's singing, everyone is just so involved. And then like he'd play like a song from his new band and everyone's just kind of standing around politely <laughs> waiting for the next uh, Led Zeppelin song. <laughs> like I've never seen such a shift in in crowd reaction to the same singer, right? It's like, it's a yeah. Robert Plant song. Everyone's just kind of like, politely like swaying and then you know black dog or a whole lot of love and every single person in the crowd is into it all of a sudden it's got to be disheartening <laughs> well i don't know i mean robert plant must know where his bread is buttered in his life. oh i'm sure i'm sure well i mean if he can't glean it out of that specific show yeah. uh show example then you know i don't know what to say about that it seems pretty easy to read <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask too, I mean, we're talking a lot about music, but it's pretty clear we're talking predominantly about rock music or punk music, because I think that's mm -hmm. where you and I gravitate, just left to our own devices. That's the music we've found most compelling in, my, in our lives. And I used to be a lot more snobbish about that than I am now. I used to be a lot more like aggressive verbally against pop or country or even rap like anything i didn't like i was like whatever it's not real music mm -hmm. i've obviously i mean not obviously but i have mellowed out a lot in that category because i started to learn people love different kinds of music for the same reason i love the kind of music that i love right and so even though it's it, the difference is superficial not deep in terms of love right and sure. so i wanted to ask you though maybe it's a total meme and not any science behind it, but I, I feel like it's resonant in my life where growing up, they say like the music that you listened to as a teenager or like age 16 to 20 is the music that you love for the rest of your life. And like you kind of, that's your center of gravity musically. So I wanted to ask you like what singer bands, groups have had the deepest impact on your life existentially and, and a couple reasons why. Yeah, I grew up and I, I totally agree with that. And I, I feel very lucky because some people are really stuck to one genre and I understand that and I understand those people. I I love a lot of different things. I love rock. I love hip hop. I love rap. I love pop. And I love like I even love country, but there's like specific artists that I will pull out of each genre. But 
I still have an anchor in music, and that anchor is in like the early pop punk movement bands like Sum 41, bands like Blink 182, even Reliant K. Like when I first came to love music on my own terms and for myself, I was listening to Does This Look Infected by Sum 41, mm. and I was listening to the self titled Blink 182 record and uh, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Um, <laughs> And like, I still go back and those are still in my brain, some of the best records of all time, just, just in, in the way that I think about Amen. music. Another one is, is Let It Enfold You by Senses Fail. Yeah. That's probably where like some of the emo influence comes from. I consider myself like one of those emo kids at heart, like all like the, the Matt, Matt, what's his name? Matt Kutchell, like emo's not dead videos. Have you mm. seen those? Uh, I've heard just, of them, but I haven't seen them. Oh my, you got it. They just kill me, especially <laughs> if you're into, into like that's that genre and that style of music bands, like simple plan, yellow card, right. like all of those guys. I grew up on that stuff. And, and to me that will forever be the pinnacle of music. <laughs> Totally. Hey, and amen, and brother. I, it's it's not that it's not that I don't dabble in other places. Like, if you're talking country, like let's put on a Chris Stapleton record. If you're talking pop, I'm obsessed with Tori Kelly. If you're talking R&B and hip hop, like let's spin J Cole. Let's spin Joyner Lucas. Like I, I I like all of those things. But if you're talking about my roots and like the core of who I am musically and and what I gravitate to, it's Yellow Card, Blink 182, Sum 41, Taking Back Sunday, yeah. Senses Fail, like those bands, like mm-hmm. that that is my that is my heart and soul of music. Yeah, I I absolutely relate to that. That was also my coming of age genre. But it's it's funny just even hearing you say it because I I think I'm like four and a half years older than you. So even though you and I have like the same bands that were formative in our lives, it's um, different records. It's different records because I, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So like you mentioned, does this look infected and like self-titled blink 22 or take off your pants and jacket where for some 41, for me, I first got into all killer, no filler, all killer, no right. Filler. Or, now, or I'll, I'll enemy of the state this... was my blink 182 and record. State, that I course, first... yeah. And so it's just so funny how even a couple of years difference changes which yeah. album and and like you brought also taking back sunday i think they got a lot more mainstream people knew about them in a more mainstream sense with their louder now album that was like a yeah. pretty big album but like i still am like tell all your friends is the one that was my exposure that's, to them that's the only that to be honest that is the only taking back sunday record that i will put on like my wife likes taking back sunday too and she'll put mm-hmm. on different records but if i'm going to put on a taking back sunday record I'm going to put on Tell All Your Friends, and I'm going to scream cute without the E all day long. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I actually, I was we were just talking a little bit before we started recording. I saw Taking Back Sunday two years ago on their 20th anniversary tour, and they played Tell All Your Friends cover to cover before they Amazing. played any other songs. Yeah, so that was great. So yeah, like it's just funny to hear that I have the same formative bands, the pop punk, emo punk background, yet it's like an album or an album and a half before the ones that you mentioned just because of our age difference. And I'll tell you what, on, on the, on the point of all killer, no filler, Mm. probably the best Sum 41 song of all time is uh, fat lip. Like you can't take fat lip away. Like you hear that. Yeah, exactly. Well, you'll like this five years ago, I saw some 41 and the band that opened for them was senses fail. So it was the two. Perfect. 
<laughs> and uh, senses fail. The lead guide senses fail. Kept teasing the crowd, being like, "Don't get into fights. If you get into fights, no fat lip for you. No in too deep for you." <laughs> Um, yeah, Buddy's a funny dude. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting because those kind of bands, like I think of those bands that I listened to as a teenager, like they were so made for teenagers, you know? Like yeah. teenagers in early 20s, like even Hawthorne Heights. I don't know if you listen to them at all. Or... Yeah, yeah. I actually, I played a show with them with oh, one okay. of my old bands. Yeah, I saw, them, yeah. I saw them at a tiny little bar in Calgary. There was like 30 people in the crowd and they were playing. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but when my heart is in what i'm sure it's not called that but my heart is in ohio yeah yeah, yeah. whatever that song is yeah. i forget the name of that song but when that comes on like it's undeniable mm -hmm. i definitely actually share all of those bands with you especially blink 182 blink 182 i think because my personality is quite fun loving as well they had a kind of irreverent take i sometimes call them the mark twain of bands <laughs> you know they're just well, they're so irreverent and hilarious in their you know presentation. when when tom started writing for blink 182 i've heard this heard him say this in interviews he said something to the effect of i wanted to write nursery rhymes on steroids <laughs> yeah it's a good way of putting and it so, yeah, and and like especially older Blink One Eighty Two, like Dude Ranch and stuff like that, like you you get that sense from it mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, Blink One Eighty Two specifically, because they kind of came to fame in the late nineties, early two thousands. This was just an era in culture that was like so ripe for their style of humor and music combination. Like they got so big. I mean, this was also the era of music videos. Like their music videos were so funny and so oh, just yeah. like in the zeitgeist of the humor at the time. I mean, and this was a big, this is a big technological change in our culture, but music videos used to be the way that people would get to know your band in a mainstream sense. Yeah, a hundred percent. I grew up watching, I would come, or I mean, I guess I wouldn't come home from school. I was homeschooled as a kid, but mm -hmm. I would finish homeschool and I would throw on much music. Yeah. To, and watch music videos to, mm -hmm. to like find out what cool bands were out there. And that's how I discovered you know, bands like Alexis on Fire, who yeah. is who are, who were huge in in my formation of what I loved about music. You know, when Watch Out came out, and they, you know, songs like No Transitory were playing on Much Music. Yeah. I, in, in fact, I remember watching a Much Music Video Awards, and Alexis on Fire was playing live, and they played No Transitory, and I remember that being a defining moment in like my young love of music, where I was like, I want to do that thing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, Alexa on Fire. So the first concert, like a real concert I ever went to, I was 18 and I had just moved to Calgary and the headliner was The Used and they were a band oh, I was nice. really, really big into at the time. But the opening band was Alexis on Fire and they killed it. They were way better than The Used Live at that show. <laughs> <laughs> and so Yeah, they were good, man. They yeah. were so good. And they came at like such, and, and, and you're right, it is an era thing and it's like, a lot of those bands were just communicating such like a deep angst mm -hmm. and it, and it, it and it was the angst of youth and when i was in the middle of my uh, like my grapple with coming of age and being a, a youth mm -hmm. bands like alexis on fire were right there to yeah. like tell me about what i was feeling and that you could was... be that you could be off the beaten path you could be a misfit looking type of person you could wear whatever clothes you wanted and you could just be 
like so expressive in your angst and your feelings, you know, like, and yet and that was okay. And that was a good thing. But the musicality was unlike anything you'd ever heard before either. Right. Yeah. Alexis on fire really, really redefined the way I thought about heavy music yeah. and, and the juxtaposition between George's screaming and Dallas's singing. Yeah. I think that's maybe where I fell in love with the idea of listening to bands with a screamer and a singer. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd, I'd already been into Census Fail at the time, but like when Alexis on Fire hit, I was like, that is so cool. Mm-hmm. That is just such a cool way of like approaching the vocals in, in a song. I, I, I loved it. There's um, one other band from this era that I want to ask you about. And I wouldn't have said that they were my favorite band when I was a teenager, but I think that they're the band that has aged the best out of that era of music and they are head and shoulders my favorite band now uh i've okay. been saying this for a long time do you think you have a guess of which band i'm talking about are they heavy or are they rock no they're they're originally emo rock i would say now their albums are alt rock more alternative but okay can i take a stab can uh, i take a stab of course is it jimmy Eat world it's definitely jimmy Eat world Yes. So this, I was waiting for Jimmy Eat World to come up. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Eat World is my favorite band now. Like at, at this, I would say they're 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 my favorite rock band as well. I, this, in fact, they're I would say they're my favorite band. Yeah, at, at this vantage point of my life, I'm 34. I've gotten a little bit more kind of perspective on what it is that music actually did for me as a teenager. You know, as you're growing, and what it still does for me now. And like, they're the only band I can think of that consistently made records out of that era that kind of grew with them. So their later records are, you're not going to get a sweetness on a new record from Jimmy Eat World, right? <laughs> but you but you right. are going to get like really awesome, more reflective alt rock type of songs. Like all of their albums really beautifully reflect their age and what they were going through at that stage in their life. One of the things I read about them that I so resonate with is that Jimmy Eat World was called The Thinking Person's Blink-182. <laughs> sure, yeah. And yeah, I love that. If I had to put it in a nutshell, the reason they're my favorite band now is that they, better than any band I've ever come across, marry heavy guitar riffs and rock and roll, like true blue rock and roll, with unbelievably thoughtful lyrics and meditations on the human condition and delivered by a, a like a class a vocalist oh exactly. i love jim Atkins' voice yeah and to your point about their growth and their records you can put on clarity mm-hmm. and then put on integrity blues and those two records are probably separated by i don't know i'm gonna guess almost two decades and while they are different it's it still feels like the same band mm-hmm yeah. Whereas like a lot of bands will grow and change so drastically that it's like, well, you like their old stuff or you like their new stuff. For me, Jimmy World, I can put on clarity and love it just as much as their new stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't find that with a lot of bands that have been making music that long. You know, it's it's something special with them. Well, and they um, it's been the same four guys since 1995. I mean, they've added mm-hmm. Robin as um, I don't know if he's an official member of the band, but he's like always there touring and he's on record. But yeah, I love him. He's so yeah, great. He's a great backup vocalist and all of that. And amazing his 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 ability to sing harmony is so key. Yeah, I actually have a funny story about them. I think it would have been three years ago. I bought tickets to go see them because they were playing at a festival in Edmonton with the Arkells and mm-hmm. a couple other bands. But they weren't coming to Calgary, so I bought the ticket to Edmonton. And then, like, two months later, they added Calgary to their tour. 
And so I, I bought the ticket for the Calgary. So I saw them in Calgary on the Friday night and then drove up to Edmonton to see them on the Saturday night. It was That's great. great. I had tickets. I, I, I had never seen them and I had tickets to see them before uh, the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic canceled the show that I was supposed to go see. Ugh. But uh, they did a series of live streams that were really, really, really good. And I watched those. You watched all three of them? I didn't watch the first one, but I watched the second two. Yeah, I watched the Futures one, which, by the by... I think you... Futures I think Futures is my favorite Jimmy Eat World record. Well, I think so, too. I think cover to cover... Well, I always, I always compare their three most famous records to the original Star Wars trilogy, right? Bleed American... Mm-hmm. Bleed American put them on the map <laughs> yep. uh, in a mainstream sense. And so because of that, it will always be endearing to people who weren't Jimmy Eat World fans before that album. Yeah. And then like Empire Strikes Back, I think Futures is the best album, even though it's right. not the one that people might necessarily immediately think of because it wasn't the first big one. And then Chase This Light uh, is like Return of the Jedi, whereas I think of the three of them, it's the weakest in the trilogy. But Chase This Light has my favorite song by them on it. And so Which one? Which Big one? Casino is my all-time favorite song. All-time favorite Jimmy World song? Okay. No, no, okay. no. All-time favorite song. <laughs> oh, okay. There you yeah. go. Wow. <laughs> and uh, nice. just like how even though Empire, uh, Return of the Jedi isn't, it's got the weakest points of the original trilogy, the last 25 minutes of Return of the Jedi is just incredible. So, <laughs> am, I, am I remembering this correctly? Is that the one that goes, I'll accept with poise, yeah. with grace? Yeah, yeah. it's the yeah. opening track of that album. Yeah. My favorite track off of that record is actually the last one. I love Dizzy. Oh yeah, that's a great. Dizzy's song, too. such a good song. Well, but I would say my favorite Jimmy World song would have to be Polaris, which ooh, is off of Futures. Yes, yes. Well, that's I would say on Futures, there's those three beautiful songs in there: Kill, mm-hmm. Polaris, and Night Drive. Yeah, you left out twenty three though, dude. Yeah, but see, but twenty three is a ballad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's yeah, a it's sure. a slightly different feel than a song. Obviously, twenty three is beautiful, but. Yeah because it's longer i think it's almost its own category whereas yeah. you know kill polaris and night drive are kind of similar length and yeah. and uh and uh, like a not a departure from what you might expect from jimmy Eat world but a departure with what you expect from like an emo band or a pop punk band where that's what i always said about jimmy Eat world is that what sets them apart to me so much musically is that unlike almost any other band in the that genre and in that era they also made beautiful songs where yeah where even though i love link 182 i can't really say they ever made beautiful songs they made awesome songs they made super fun songs they made musically genius songs but there aren't really any blink 182 songs where i'm listening to them like that was beautiful yeah yeah great point but yeah and then you throw on something like polaris yeah and what what what's cool about jimmy world is that you know? So they were they were pl- playing alongside the era of like Blink One Eighty Two, yep. and then the other thing that was happening at that time was like the emo heavier movement bands mm-hmm. like Senses Fail, yeah, who were screaming and it was you know drop tuned and angsty. And what was cool about Jimmy Eat World that I appreciate now that I didn't appreciate then because I think honestly it was a little too young to appreciate it, mm-hmm. is that they built in the same angst that was being communicated by bands like Census Fail, but they did it in such uh, an introspective and artistic way. And it was a little bit 
harder as someone who was young during that era to latch on to mm-hmm. because it was less spelled out for me. But now when I go back and I compare like the lyrics or just the emotion that is being conveyed, like Jim Adkins just has a way of saying things you've always known to be true mm-hmm. that you've never had words for. Oh, for and, sure. Like you think about like, like we're talking about Polaris and like lost love. And, you know, every time that bridge comes on, you know, I've done, there's nothing left to show. I mm-hmm. tried, but I can't let go. Like yeah. that is that feeling. And yeah. it, there's, it, and he, he captured it so purely and so honestly. And uh, he, I think he's better at that than anyone else I can think of. Well, to augment that point, aesthetically, they never really tried to like stand out in terms of like, ridiculous costumes or excess of like they never looked like they were pushing a fashion or a a kind of like this song is going to piss your parents off that's why you should listen to it kind of thing right, right? Yeah. whereas like there's definitely some element of other bands from that era like a my chemical romance or even a census fail that is like accentuating some of the more socially deviant aspects of punk music in general right like there's always been a rebelliousness and a social deviance in punk music ever since its beginning like anarchy in the uk kind of thing right yeah so that that's always been a really germane and important part of the punk stew that gets made and i think why jimmy world stands the test of time better than some of those other bands is that rebellion against the society around them wasn't so much what they were singing about. They were talking about if there was any rebellion, it was like rebellion against their own emotional hangups and their own, the things inside of them that were holding them back in some creative or relational sense and like articulating it with the insight that comes when you actually have to introspect on it, putting it out into the world. And then existentially so many people latching on be like, yes, I relate to that in a way that sticks with you, at least stick, stuck with me longer than bands that were just being like, fuck you, mom and dad, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Eat World was never really shocking to look at, no. you know? And you're right. Bands like like My Chemical Romance is a great, great example. You know, you think about the Black Parade, like, uh, or Helena, you know, like the Helena music video was very gothic and, uh, Mm-hmm. And and very shocking, and the imagery was very strong, and the music. There's an very, element very... of spectacle to it all, right? Yeah, and Jimmy Eat World never carried that. They just simply, throughout their entire career, maintained being a rock band who wrote songs really, really effectively about the experience of being a human. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why so many people have latched onto them. And I and I, I think that's the role of art, anyway, is to just put words to the things that we all know to be true that we don't necessarily all have the words for Mm -hmm. and you don't have to be shocking to do it because the human experience is common to all of us right i think that's why they were never like one of those like i hate you mom and dad bands they were always just being the band exploring the human experience right and i think that that's why they attract themselves so much to me is that you know, part of what I'm calling the liberal soul is the person who's curious about the world and their own place in it and are always asking questions about that. And in a very, in a not too rhetorical sense, one way you could talk about Jimmy World is that 
they're just thinking out loud with guitar riffs around them. Hundred percent. <laughs> right. It's, like it is a bit of a it is a bit of a conversation. Yeah. And and that's something that I love about following a band. And I've said this uh, a number of times. Following a band across decades is that as you listen to their records and you pick out there's there's different thematic narratives that you can pick out from different eras of their music you know and so you you go back and you you listen to to clarity and thematically you know the i I assume jim i'll say jim um but whoever is writing the the music and the lyrics Mm. they're they're struggling with different things then then they're struggling you know with another one of my favorite records integrity blues you know right. and they're not entirely different but the the angle and the approach to the problem has changed mm-hmm. and you kind of get to grow through the band and and experience their journey through humanity through the band through their music and when you follow a band for decades it's really fun to to watch them change and watch you change and how you in, uh, interact with their music change right yeah i mean to me, Paul Roger is the best song of the last decade. <laughs> I love that <laughs> song. There's there's so many good ones, yeah. man. One last point on them before we uh, I have a couple more questions for you to wrap up. But the mm-hmm. on their most recent album, uh, Surviving, they have this song called Diamond. And mm-hmm. the whole like the chorus of that song is um, a diamond grows with time. Don't believe them if they try to sell you something else. And mm-hmm. it's like the wisdom around delaying gratification, putting in the effort and the time, especially in a culture that's so about instant gratification, like getting what you want now, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And I even feel it in myself. Like if I search up something on the internet, I'm annoyed if it takes more than eight seconds to load or something like that. Yeah, or if the Amazon package doesn't show up tomorrow, then what's even the point? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so it's not a sexy message to be like, well, no, like if you want a diamond, it's going to take a long time. And you got to learn to be okay with that. And it's just like that kind of stuff is so up and down throughout the synapses of their music, you know, like that Mm -hmm. kind of idea, that kind of like human insight. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. why they've stuck with me as I've aged and gotten older and are, and I'm not really angsty at all anymore. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, just, Just like all those insights. So one more question for you because it's different for me and so i want to get your perspective i would say that music isn't playing the same role in my life now as it did when i was younger so obviously teen and early 20s music was playing quite an existential role for me right like it was my escape from the harrows of existence (laughs) kind of thing like and especially like dealing with what it was starting to be like to have romantic feelings for girls and like all this all of that kind of anxiety that is that is reflected in the music that you like Mm -hmm. but for me at this stage in my life jimmy world maybe being a salient exception i don't really get much existentially out of bands anymore and i feel like because a lot of it the themes of songs i hear now like oh yeah that makes sense to me as opposed to like oh i've never thought of that before so sure. so now I feel a much I still love music but my attachment to music has become much more social than individual mm-hmm. in the sense that mm-hmm. like I love karaoke I love putting on a song that people know and we can sing together I love concerts right like the the social experience of music So I, my question is like what's your relationship to music now versus when you were a younger person Yeah uh 
I may be a bit of a unique situation because my experience with music has changed drastically because I work in the music industry. So music has become my job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and so that changes the landscape of the relationship quite a lot. And that's not to downplay its role in my life because music is still very, very important to me. But whereas, you know, the, the typical music consumer hops into their car and they put on a record when they're driving somewhere, you know, I generally speaking work, you know, at least eight, but usually 10, 12, like I did a 16 hour day at the studio this week. Like I work long days and I'm working on music all day. So when I hop into my car at the end of a 16 hour work day, working on music, I'll put on a record. You know, I've, I've kind of exhausted that area of my soul. So my love for music now is kind of like the slow burn passion, I would say of a marriage where like, you know, it, the 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 honeymoon phase is is gone like it's not that i'm i'm disenchanted with it and i still have those moments of even rescue when when i need some like my soul needs to say something and i put on the right song and that thing is said like mm -hmm. that still happens but on a day-to-day -day basis my love of music is the kind of love that comes from a deep and intimate knowing and in some ways an overexposure um, because, you know, it is my job and it, I engage with it every day. And when I need to take a break from music, I don't put on music. I very rarely, like, I'll very rarely get to a weekend, you know, making breakfast and want to put on a record. It happens, but it, that happens less often. That casts a negative light on my relationship with music. I don't feel negatively about it. It is... Right. Other than the people in my life, it is the thing in my life that I love the most. But it is a less exciting and, you know, firework driven relationship mm. and more of a long, slow burn that will be around forever. Yeah, you know? kind of like a, a long view satisfaction on a relationship well related to. Yeah, it's it's become an integral part of who I am. And it is something I engage with on a daily basis and it's deeply ingrained into me. And mm. uh, while it doesn't have the same spark and fireworks as it did when I was putting on some 41 records when I was a kid, it has a different, uh, a different feeling of equal value. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have a follow-up though. It just occurred to me because music doesn't really play that existential role in my life anymore. That has kind of been replaced by I would say like literature. So the thing yep. the thing that music was doing for me in my teens and, and early twenties is now being got through Charles Dickens or George Eliot or Dostoevsky kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like these kind of thunderous insights into the human condition. So yep. do you think has has anything else arisen in your life that is helping to play a role that used to be just totally music only did that. Have you noticed anything else grow up in your life that way? Yeah. So in the past, I would say four or five years, I really took a liking to grappling with this question of like, what is my role in the world and how do I play that effectively? And what is this thing called being human? And what the hell does that mean? And how do I do that effectively? So some literature... I do a lot of driving to and from the studio, so I do a lot of audiobooks. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm reading I'm reading a number of different books right now. I'm reading The Fourth Turning, 
Oh yeah. Um, which is a book about history that's very, very fascinating. I'm reading Beyond Order, which is the second uh, installment of the Twelve Rules for Life from yep. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. I'm a huge Peterson fan. Um, yeah, me too. And then in the car, I'm listening to a number of different things, but in terms of literature, I'm listening to the Gulag Archipelago right now by oh, yeah. uh, Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm a little bit concerned about the trajectory of Canada. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I and, get it. And then the other thing that uh, more recently, really uh, kind of as the uh, the most recent U.S. election heated up, I've been really gl- grappling with uh, the political climate of the West. And, you know, obviously our cousin, uh, mutual cousin David and I started a, a podcast <laughs> that at least has some political elements to it. So I have that. And then I, lis- I like to listen to a number of other political commentators because I now have an interest in what it means to be human, how my humanity is played out in the place that I live and how that is being affected by the people run the people who run the countries that I associate myself with, Mm -hmm. you know, that being Canada and the United States and, you know, that sort of thing. So that's kind of like my new muse where I sink my, my remaining brain power at the end of my day into. Mm. Well, I have a couple episodes I recorded on a book uh, called a thousand small sanities, the moral adventure of liberalism. That's been a Mm -hmm. book that's really like, kind of. do you mean liberalism in the classical sense? Yes. I still do consider myself a conservative, but I realized, and this was like a huge catalyst into the kickstart of my thinking about the the, the landscape of politics. Mm. I read a book by uh, Dave Rubin yeah. called Don't Burn This Book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was making, have you read it? No, but I've heard him talk about it a lot. He was making the argument for classical li- liberalism. And because, you know, my family is conservative, I, I still do consider myself a conservative. But like, even if you want to pl- practice classical liberalism at this in this political climate, that lands you on the conservative spectrum. It was interesting to, to, to read that book and grapple with those concepts and be like, oh, my goodness, I agree with like all of this stuff. Yeah. And this is what is supposed to be liberal. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because it's such a recent book, I think it was published in 2019. A Thousand yeah. Small Sanities is such a clarifying, or you could just listen to my two-parter episode on it and <laughs> see what you is that, think. Uh, is that on Really True Fiction? No, no, no. It's going to be on this uh, podcast. So oh, okay, cool. when I yeah. launch it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I'll uh, dip my toes in with the podcast and then, <laughs> and then I'll read the book when I, I don't, I don't find myself with a lot of time to read because sure. it works so many hours, yeah, but yeah. Uh, and I, like I said, I'm digging through a number of books right now, but um, I'm always looking for great books to read. Yeah. Well, there's a great Emerson quote. I can no more remember all the books I've read any more than I can remember all the meals I've eaten. But still, they have made me. <laughs> yeah. And sustained you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah when, you read, when you read enough books, you glean ideas and concepts more than just like f- facts. Oh, you know? for sure. So just before I let you go, I want to introduce this little music game I sometimes play with my more literary-minded friends. Have you ever played the uh, uh, song titles that didn't quite make it game? No. (laughs) Oh, so you've never heard of that almost Beatles hit, Hey Dude? (laughs) No? Yeah. Did you ever Uh, hear about, there was like, there was rumors around a potential working together between Yogi Bear and Green Day when Dookie came out? Uh, no, I didn't hear. Yeah, about they that. were going to release their hit single "Picnic Basket Case." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know my fit. You know, you know the game that I like is lyrics that sound like something that they're not. Ah, yes. So, so as an example, there's a a band that I love uh, called The Artist Life, one of the punk bands I grew up on. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this one line, and the line is, I needed you to pick me up. Mm-hmm. But the way he delivers the line, it sounds exactly like, I need a Jew to pick me up. <laughs> I need a Jew to pick me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Misheard lyrics, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, who can remember all those? Because like Blink-182 almost wrote, how old am I? <laughs> yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, i've just put i'm planning that in your mind as a as a fun music based word game to play with friends who also yeah that would be fun (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, there's so many there's so many like uh that almost queen hit we will stone you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway yeah any last thoughts that you have before i let you go uh, just thank you for having me on. This has been so fun to catch up with oh, you yeah, and, and chat music and just chat about something we love. And I had known that we, we you know, kind of listened to the same music, but I didn't realize how much of the mm-hmm. same music that we, you know, both grew up on, even if it was a record or two apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was it same car, different seats? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever yeah, that yeah, expression yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks. Thanks, Zach. And um, definitely I'll have to have you back you can be maybe one of the go-to music episode or whatever you want. Any book. I would love that, man. I would love that. We can go, we can dig deeper on anything specific maybe later, but again, because music, I consider like retrospectively looking back on it, music was my gateway into what I'm calling the liberal soul. This thing that called to me of a bigger world beyond the enclosure of my mind at the time. And I love the things that call me beyond my default solipsistic setting of just my brain, my experience, nothing beyond that, right? And there's something about music that does that in a way that makes you want to dance in that direction, not just move towards it, you know? Yeah, um, and that's that's the role of art. It's to yeah. expose you to to ideas that you haven't yet thought about. And oftentimes those ideas are emotions and it's you know the idea of an emotion and how to experience and deal with that and uh that's why art is so cool (laughs) those seen dancing were thought strange by those who could not hear the music yeah (laughs) may you may you may you ever hear the music (laughs) yeah may you ever hear the music that's a great way great way to go (laughs) yes well anyway thanks again zach and thanks for everyone for listening you found the liberal soul